Comedy icon Margaret Cho and her podcast from Erios called The Margaret Cho brings you a weekly intimate conversation with an eclectic range of guests from stand-ups to drag queens to rock stars and activists. The conversations are organic, hilarious, and she never shies away from subjects like race, sexuality, or politics. You can listen to The Margaret Cho wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, how are you? Oh, I love these things. We have a special bonus episode for Q's podcast subscribers. That means you, Charlie. Pop Chat from CBC Podcasts is a new weekly podcast delivering smart takes on this week's top culture stories. You might know Elamine Abdel Mahmoud. He comes by every uh, so often on our show to talk a little bit about the internet, to talk a little bit about, uh, well, we end up talking a lot about country music, so I think we're the only two people on the CBC who like country music. But that being said, uh, he comes by to talk smartly about pop culture, and that's what he's doing in this podcast. They invite you into the group chat, which is a text reference, to help make sense of the cultural drama blowing up the internet. Figuratively. Join them every week as they debate and find the fun in today's pop culture discourse. Essentially, these are like some of the funniest and smartest people I know around pop culture. You know, while I'm sitting down whittling and listening to Earl Scruggs, they know what's going on. So listen to them. Right now, we have the first episode for you. Take a listen to this. Well, hello, I'm Elamine Abdul Mahmoud, and this is the first official episode of Pop Chat. And on today's show, the Kardashians are finally pulling the plug on the reality show. And you know what? Love them or hate them, they've left a permanent mark on pop culture. The panel will look at their legacy a little bit later in the show. Plus, the Oscars have announced these new diversity rules. And also, the Emmys are this weekend. And we are asking, do you care? Do award shows still matter? And also, we unpack the controversy around Netflix's new movie, Cuties. And of course, the panelists will tell you what you need to be watching or reading or listening to this week. Hi, pals, and welcome to Pop Chat. With me today are Shireen Ahmed, a writer and award-winning sports activist, also known as the Beast from the East. Hi, Shireen. Morning. Emil Niazi, a pop culture critic with bylines on Vice, L, and The Guardian, and also the person who knows just about everything there is to know about reality television. Hi, Emil. Hi, I love that intro. Thank you. <laughs> that's that's just who you are. And Kevin Fallon, a critic for the Daily Beast and Carol Baskin dancing enthusiast. Hi, Kevin. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing the, the roar. That may I've regretted it already, life. I really do. <laughs> Calls to cancel Netflix over its handling of an award-winning French film about a young girl. You know, I don't even know what to say. These are supposed to be 11-year-old girls. As a woman, it breaks my heart to see the way that they are being essentially sexualized and used. Senator Ted Cruz is now joining other lawmakers in calling for a criminal investigation. 
Okay, so you've heard a little bit about the controversy surrounding the new Netflix movie, Cuties. Um, everyone from U.S. Senator Ted Cruz to the new leader of the opposition here in Canada, Aaron O'Toole, they've been tweeting about it. Some people are calling it child exploitation, that it's kind of beginning to build this really strange QAnon level of hysteria. People are calling to cancel Netflix over what they call the film's over-sexualized portrayal of young girls. Film critics are saying these concerns are entirely misdirected and overhyped and that Netflix is actually to blame for how the movie was marketed to North American audiences. So what is going on? Is it exploitation? Emil, I'm going to start with you. Why are people upset about this movie? So basically back in August, Netflix started putting out some promotional material for uh, a new film that they'd acquired, a French film called Cuties. Um, and, you know, in the traditional kind of Netflix style, it was quite um, without context and it was a it was a pretty provocative photo of, of very young girls. Um, and it set people crazy, uh, you know, in this kind of like climate that we're in where, where QAnon has really infiltrated, uh, you know, corners of the mainstream. It was like, it was like bait. Uh, and so people have been calling to cancel Netflix. The movie hadn't even premiered yet. No one had any idea what it was about. Um, but it turns out that the movie is exactly what people are railing against. It is about the dangers of hypersexualizing young girls. So the film is about an 11 year old Senegalese girl in Paris who is sort of trying to escape the oppression of her home life by joining a dance crew. Um, and the movie sets out to portray, you know, some of the things that young girls experience now, access to pornography, um, hypersexualization through media. Um, and it really, the film, if you watch it, is actually, you know, exactly what these people are sort of cautioning against. But the hysteria, uh, as is usual, does not match um, the actual reality of what's going on. I mean, Kevin, this is like a small international release on Netflix. They rarely get that much hype. How, how did politicians get involved in this? I mean, it's such an easy target to drum up you know, favor from these fringe groups that have such a loud voice um, that these politicians are capitalizing on. The controversy, not the, not the film, the controversy speaks so directly to these QAnon extremists, um, to this sort of pedophilia panic that is not actually rooted in the reality of this horrible, you know, thing that's happening, you know, everywhere, but, you know, pedophilia is a real issue, but the, these sort of false controversies aren't addressing that. They're addressing th these ridiculous hoaxes and, you know, making a mountain out of this molehill, which is, you know, just a small international film is actually commenting on it. So I think it's, it's just because of the fact that it is such an easy target and that Netflix did such a disastrous job um, mm -hmm. in its, you know, unveiling with that original poster. It played right into the hands of those people. And it's, I think, one of the rare cases where not all publicity is good publicity. I think this negative publicity is redirecting the conversation in such a harmful way that it's not only hurting the film, but like I said earlier, it's it's hurting you know any sort of dignity and care that a, you know a pedophile crisis should should actually have. Shireen, when I first saw the posters uh, for this movie, before I knew anything about what it was about, I was like, oh no, Netflix, what have you done? Um, <laughs> and, and then I read like, a few of the reviews. I haven't watched the movie itself yet, but I've read a few of the reviews, and it's, you know, it's like a, a deeply well-thought-out film, at least according to a lot of critics, um, about the dangers of young girlhood and it being over-sexualized too early. Um, what can we lay on Netflix's feet here in terms of their role in creating this controversy? 
Well, one of the first things was I was very interested in this because the dual identities of Prince Senegalese and, and everything, and it's not just about hypersexualization. It's actually based autobiographically on Memuna Ducare's own experience, the filmmaker. And a little bit she draws from her own experience. And she said in an interview with Aramidi Tinubu that she had said that she hadn't even seen the poster before it was launched. Mm. And the poster was essentially what set off all of this because the poster of Mignon, which is the name of the movie in French, is just four of them walking on the street with shopping bags. So it's very, it's not provocative. It's not, it shows, a, it looks like Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants kind of thing, but younger. Mm. So it doesn't look offensive in that way. So she had said that she would be more careful moving forward because she hadn't seen the poster and Netflix had apologized to her and apologized to like the world, you know, in one of those apologies, not apologies. But I think that if they wanted, to Kevin's point, if they wanted an attention grab, I don't think this is a way to do it. Like this is a, you know, I, I think it's a good thing for people to be alarmed about, you know, human trafficking and pedophilia, but like Netflix, not like this wasn't the way to do it. And I'm really surprised that I think they've usually been spot on because I feel like after the pandemic, I've watched every film in that, in that entire catalog, but to not, to not get this and to not be careful about this is also really problematic. On the other hand, I would say that, um, Netflix knew exactly what it was doing because this is the fourth most watched movie in the U.S. This is a small mm. film, um, a, a, an international film. You know, U.S. audiences are not necessarily so keen on having to put on their um, subtitles. So the fact that it garnered this much attention, um, you know, I would say perhaps Netflix knew exactly what it was doing. Um, and unfortunately, it worked because people so are, are watching it that might not have watched it. So many pedophiles just finding that movie on Netflix. <laughs> but I mean, the, the, I think what we're also seeing here is the most frustrating part about discourse today, which is that it doesn't matter if you haven't seen something, mm. you're still gonna, you know, you, you, you could pry your opinion from your cold dead hands, even if it's based on something that you haven't seen. And it doesn't matter if the people who actually have seen something or actually have information to tell you about it that, you know, informs this horrible opinion that you have, you're not going to change your mind. It's this sort of sticking your your boots in the mud and not moving attitude that people have today that I think is also a part of why this controversy has just com continued to blow up. I haven't watched it yet, but I certainly will. And I wouldn't have heard about this particular filmmaker, but I'm going to air our I'm going to basically take her side. I'm going to give her all the excuses and I'm going to guess I'm going to watch it only because I would love to support the creativity of a black Muslim French woman before I heed any calls for alarm from Ted Cruz. Like right now, I will be honest, Golden Girls is streaming on Prime. So it's the only thing that I'm doing these days, but I will go back to Netflix and, and watch this specifically because of all this hullabaloo. I personally find it shocking that you don't go to Ted Cruz for your movie opinions, um, but that's okay with me. <laughs> I guess something that I'm curious about is the sort of force that you see of all these screenshots um, when you see people who have emailed in um, to Netflix being like, I'm canceling my subscription and then kind of posting a screenshot of that versus the other reality, the, the algorithm reality of so many people are watching this movie, like you mentioned, Emil. Um, and I'm curious if, uh, if you're the filmmaker, it, is this what you want out of your small, little, intimate film that you made to maybe reflect on something that's really, really sensitive? Emil, I'll start with you. No, no, they did her dirty. Um, you know, this is a young Black filmmaker uh, who, you know, this is her first foray kind of into 
into this, into this world, into this kind of more mainstream recognition. And, uh, you know, she may be untouchable for a while. People are going to be afraid to be involved with her, regardless of what's real and what's not, um, just because of this hype. And if it was me, I would be, I would be furious uh, with Netflix and I would, I don't know, you know, I would be getting my lawyers on this shit because mm. I just really think that that what they've done um, is a grave disservice to this filmmaker. And you can never underestimate how how petty and how diligent these internet attack armies are. Um, they will follow her for years. You know, anything she does, any interview she gives, any any journalist who interviews her and tweets out the article is going to get you know dozens and dozens of hateful messages to them. I'm still being attacked by Rihanna fans for a bad. Um, review I gave of an, of an album that she released like seven years ago. Like these people, once like there's a negative army has a cause, they they march with that cause until their dying days. And so it's really going to hurt this filmmaker to have this just sort of poisoning every everything she does, no matter how how great it is. Kevin, how dare you give Rihanna? Back? <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, I'm like, you know what? <laughs> I have, you, have you not tried Fenty lip gloss? <laughs> Friends, it is the end of an era. 14 years and 20 seasons after Keeping Up With The Kardashians first aired, the show is now coming to an end. And boy, what a ride it's been. I'm just so f***ing over glam. I, d I honestly don't want to film, like, ever again. <laughs> you don't stop. Ever! Guys, stop it! Dig your nails in me! You guys, stop! <gasps> Courtney! Courtney! She you guys, stop it! One minute they're laughing, the next minute they're slapping each other. Like, what the f is happening? This is crazy. I can't believe this has gone this far. The Kardashians, you could reasonably say, are leaving behind a landscape that has changed because of them. They've given us a visual language. They've done more for selfies than the front-facing camera could. They've done more for selfies than Steve Jobs did. They've rewritten beauty standards. They've flooded the market with very sketchy detox D endorsements. Um, there's a lot to dig into here. So, Shireen... Be real with me. How did you feel when you first heard that the show was ending? I was very interested in what they're going to do next. Like, this isn't the end of us seeing the Kardashians. I mean, I think business model-wise, influencer-wise, I think, I think Kim Kardashian was one of the first huge influencers in that, in that celebrity sphere who wasn't necessarily an actress or an athlete or didn't have this celebre around her, but she was just famous for being famous as it went. And yes, there's a lot of things we can talk about, anti-Blackness, cultural appropriation, theft from small designers and whatnot, and exploitation of labor in different places to make their products. So the list goes on and on. But I think my biggest thing is they've made me think, this family as a whole, made me think about the levels of criticism and why we focus it on women as opposed to men. Kevin, why do you think they're calling it quits? Well, it's the, because we all caught up with them, get it? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but honestly, what the, what, the, what the issue is, and probably why they moved on, is that the industry really caught up with what they had built. Um, you know, when they started, it was at a time when celebrities, the way that we traditionally thought about them, these, you know, A-list movie stars, were being more and more controlled and more and more um, sort of put behind walls and it was just about what you can keep from the public versus what you give. And I think a sort of cultural frustration with that 
played a part into this boom of the Kardashians, which started at just the right time, and they had just the right sort of shamelessness to to capitalize on that moment. Yeah. Um, and you know, as they became more famous, the show became a tool for them to sort of control that fame and comment on you know all of their various scandals and sort of filter it through the lens that they want. But now, when you watch the show, you're sort of just watching like you know, reruns of their Instagram live stories and, you know, screenshots of their yeah. tweets and photos of their Instagrams, you know, it, it can't, it can't keep up with them. Um, it can't keep up with the way that a celebrity now, if they want to be even superficially public has to, you know, output and, and produce on social media. Um, and you, we're seeing that with the, this next generation of influencers, which now exists on YouTube and TikTok and, and Instagram, and not necessarily on this reality TV platform that they help create. So I think, like like you know, Shireen said, they're not going to go away, um, but they're at this new level of fame um, that I think is a really interesting thing to sort of explore going forward, where they became sort of the first legitimate reality TV A-listers. Um, and now that they don't have a reality TV platform, what will happen to them? They really defined the genre. Like they, they essentially created the model for so much reality TV um, and especially reality TV as something that is legitimate and something that people can openly talk about and share. Um, but like Kevin said, it's like they've been lapped. The idea of holding things back for the season um, that's no longer possible because um, influencers um, and the audience expect things truly 24 seven. So they can't do that anymore. It's really hard to like hold back a wedding or hold back a pregnancy announcement or, you know, mm -hmm. in the era of TMZ, you really cannot have the kind of micromanaged appearances uh, and storylines that Kris Jenner has been so amazing at producing. And so it really, it's like they, they built the castle and they sort of, in a way, um, are responsible for tearing the castle down because with the TikTok houses and, um, you know, where, where kind of young people get together and they basically live stream content all the time. Like, how can you then also have a show that's relevant where you're waiting, you know, months and months and months to actually catch up with, Kylie Jenner's baby bump when you've been seeing it since the summer, you know? So yeah, they, mm. they're sort of the hoist on their own petard, if you will. I also think there's a bit, <laughs> there's, there's a bit of narcissism and, and ego, which might be misplaced and then moving on, where I think you've sort of got a sense over the years that it was a bit of an irritation to have to go back to this like reality TV show that they're on when, you know, they're also on Vogue and they're traveling the world and then, you know, walking in Paris Fashion Week and all these other things. It seemed like a platform that was sort of becoming beneath them, even though I would argue that <laughs> it certainly is not. Um, and I think their decision to move on is sort of making this pronouncement that they have sort of elevated themselves out of that genre. Um, and I'll, I guess we'll see whether or not that was a mistake. So Shereen, I'm wondering, like, where does a family like this kind of turn to next? Um, is, is Do they quit a show because maybe they're about to launch like an entire channel that is just the Kardashians? Like, I, I honestly don't know what comes next. I think that because they got so famous so broadly in so many ways, I think they're going to start doing niche. Like Kendall's doing modeling. Um, Chloe marries basketball players. Um, and <laughs> Kylie, well, I, I was I a mean, fan. Yes. Of, well, I was a fan <laughs> of Lamar Odom. Um, Kylie does makeup. I think they're starting to realize that specialization is good. I feel like they should buy a WNBA team. So if Kris Jenner wants to call me, I can advise her. I like that you've turned this into a business pitch. That's what I love most <laughs> there about you it. There you go. Um, Emil, 
I would love, love, love to see a Chris Jenner, Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, um, you know, crossover. Oh, that would be um, the dream, wouldn't it? That's that's the dream for sure. And I honestly, I could see Kourtney Kardashian also as a Real Housewife. Maybe she'll move to Potomac and join that crew. I don't know, but I just think like, you know, like we've all said, we're certainly not going to see the end of them. But I would be surprised if it's if it's in the same vein. I, I think they will try and and make like like Kevin said. Um, I think they do think that they are beneath the reality TV um, circuit and they're going to try and elevate themselves into more of kind of a, uh, a social issue, political issue type of arena. Kevin, last word to you. You know, as, as much as I would love to see Chris Jenner on um, Real House of Beverly Hills, I think they can't afford her. Um, but what I do think will happen is what we've started to see already as they have tried to sort of distance themselves from their e-channel reality show which is as they take on these other endeavors, whether it's Kim with her, you know, her law degree or Khloe Kardashian with getting into, you know, mind-blowingly good shape, is they've filmed those journeys for like, special docu-series projects. Um, and I think those docu-series have become a very in vogue kind of celebrity vanity um, genre. Um, and I would be shocked if they didn't capitalize on that as they, you know, move on to the next phases and their next ventures, it's all going to be in front of a camera in some way. Last question. We're going to go around the table super quickly. Who is the most defensible Kardashian and why is it Courtney? Emil? Oh my God. It's obviously Courtney. Courtney just wants to be a good mom, take care of her kids um, and, and run a beautiful house. Like, of course it's Courtney. The fact that she doesn't want to be on the show makes her already the most defensible Kardashian. Let Courtney be free. Shireen. Uh, that's a tough one. I'm going to say Kylie because she's so young and Kylie works really hard. I'm a single mom. She's a single mom, you know, and just seeing that hustle. Yeah, I mean, I respect the hustle, but also she's a single mom worth a billion dollars. But sure, <laughs> sure. go no, off, No, because queen. not enough people <laughs> donated to that campaign, so she didn't stay at a billion dollars. All right, touche. Kevin? Kim, there are people that are dying. It's, I mean... <laughs> probably my favorite reality TV moment ever. Yes. Um, I think I use that quote once a day in these <laughs> pandemic times, trying to bring, you know, context <laughs> to the horror of life right now. Yeah. Um, you know, Courtney is iconic. Courtney stand forever. Sound off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. David Tennant does a podcast with, from something else, is back for another season. David sits down virtually with the biggest names in entertainment, including Dame Judi Dench, Jim Parsons, Elizabeth Moss, and more. You'll get an inside look at these stars' lives with revealing conversations, surprising stories, and of course, lots of laughs. New episodes of David Tennant Does a Podcast With, available every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. So even though we are still in the middle of a pandemic, apparently the award shows must go on. Despite the fact that many of the usual Oscar bait movies are not going to be in theaters this year, we're not going to see them, much to my heartbreak. Um, the Academy Awards are still going ahead, although they're going to push it a little bit later, and they're going to be in late April, April 25th. And they announced this brand new diversity inclusion 
rules for Best Picture in order to keep up with all these industry demands because people have been calling the Oscars so white, too white for so long. And on top of that, also the Emmy Awards are this Sunday, and I'm sure they're going to figure out some kind of way to maybe keep me entertained and figure out a way to transmit a spectacle into my home. So with all these big changes afoot, we thought we should talk about award shows and if anybody still cares. But first, Kevin, can you explain to me the new diversity inclusion rules that the Oscars announced? Um, I can try because they're so odd and confusing that, you know, (laughs) that they're giving themselves four years to put them in place. Um, (laughs) But basically, you know, broadly speaking, they created, you know, four buckets of um, standards that in order to be qualified for best picture, um, a film will have to meet. And they include, um, you know, the diversity in the the actors who are on camera, um, diversity in, you know, character and storylines, diversity of the people behind the camera, um, which includes producers and directors and sound people, but also um, publicity teams and marketing teams and things like that. And basically, so there are these four sort of buckets that have different qualifications in them. And in order to qualify for Best Picture, a movie will have to now um, check the box of two of those, which... You know, it, on the one hand, when you look at every measure, you know, just down the whole list, you're like, oh my God, this is such a, you know, a wild push towards diversity and, you know, a major, you know, major, major important hoop that they're making these people jump through in order to, to, to you know, make the academy more inclusive. But then there are people who have gone back over the last, you know, two decades at least and seen that, you know, every Best Picture nominee that there has been already meets these standards. So it's basically just the Academy saying, hey, everyone, we're thinking about diversity and we want you to think about it too. However, as long as business keeps operating as usual, nothing is really gonna change. So it's it's good to be thinking about it, but is it really gonna do much good at all if the fact that the last 20 years we've already been sort of qualifying anyway? I'll tell you what movie for sure meets those qualifications is Green Book, Emil. <laughs> I knew uh, it. I, I was like, is he going to bring up Green Book? Hell yeah, I am. Uh, <laughs> yeah, best picture winner and delight to crowds everywhere. Um, Green Book. I, here's the thing. I'm curious if you think these rules will actually end up achieving anything. Uh, I don't think so. Not Certainly not in the short term because, you know, you could conceivably, like you just said, Green Book, you can have a film that meets two of the criteria but still have a completely all white um, crew. You could have, you know, a, still have white directors, white producers. Um, I, I just don't think that it, they go far enough. If all of the past films meet those criteria, then what are we really striving for? And it doesn't really seem like anyone's given anything up here. The funny thing is how immediately triggered so many people in the industry were by these rules being um, introduced in the first place, because they did make them uncomfortable. The fact that they would have to somehow compromise their artistic integrity by meeting some industry inclusivity standard and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Not, not even realizing that this is such a bare minimum that they were already meeting it. Sandra Bullock's The Blind Side would for sure fall in under these categories. A movie that I recently rewatched and uh, mm, listen, it's like the most Oscar Beatty thing I could possibly watch, you, you know, um, and I'm, I'm curious about what you think this season of Oscar Beatty movies is going to look like, um, given these rules. I've 
actually really had my eyes more this year on the Emmys. Like that's where my focus is, where traditionally I pay attention to the Oscars because I'm only interested in Viola Davis in a dress. It's the only reason I watch the Oscars. Like give me more. So I'm not, I'm kind of like, mm, and I really want to see Chadwick Boseman win something. He has to win posthumously. If he doesn't, mm. I will boycott it all. But I just want to see how they manage or mismanage this year too. Like I have no faith in the Academy. And like to, to Kevin's point, if everyone's going to get up in arms because we're like higher black people, when clearly black women are like incredible creatives and they're like, oh, you're challenging. You can't tell me what to do. I'm an artiste. I will express this way. Like, I don't have time for that. So, but I'm more interested in TV now and what that looks like. TV, I, in my opinion, was less affected than movies because the opinion, the experience has stayed the same. So Shireen is basically giving up on movies. Kevin, I'm, we're in the, Kevin, we're in the <laughs> middle. the blind side. Yeah. Stellar film, yeah. stellar. Kevin, we're in the middle of festival season. Right now, we should be hearing about a lot of movies that will end up being contenders for um, for you know for the Oscars next year. Is it going as well as the industry is hoping? Given you know that there's a pandemic going on outside, I think the industry is so wrapped up in this idea that everything is so extremely different that they're not seeing how much it's kind of the same as always. Mm. Um, the funny thing to me about this idea of having to push the Oscars back because we can't show these movies in theaters and you know how can the Oscar voters see them is that the Oscar voters watch movies on screeners that they get in their houses. <laughs> you know, without movie theaters to go to, they're still gonna watch the screeners in their houses. And they're gonna watch the screeners that critics tell them to watch when they um, cover the Toronto Film Festival and when they cover you know the other film festivals are gonna happen this fall. And so those things that are, you know, you know, integrated into the system already are ch chugging along the way they always have mm. and you know i like i would like to think that things will be more democratic this year because of the fact that there isn't going to be as big of a campaign season and the big parties and the you know handshaking can't really happen um but i'm already seeing things shake out in kind of the same way as always well, from uh, from one closed system to another closed system, um, Emil, this year's Emmys kind of reflect, you know, the, the the sort of big dramas that we come expect from the Emmys every year. Um, sort of last late last year's slate of of those uh, those comedies and dramas are dominating everything. Um, but this year, all we've been watching is reality TV. And how do you think that's going to impact the Emmys next year? Will they adapt to include that? I mean, I hope that they do, you know, like, yes, this this Emmys will reflect um, a huge uh, season of television last year. You know, obviously Succession, um, rooting for my boy Ken, Ken Roy, <laughs> um, and Tom, Tom Wamsgams. Um, yeah. and, and obviously Schitt's Creek. There was a lot of really, really good television that, that came out in the last year. Um, but going forward, yeah, I, you know, since a lot of uh, productions are on hold, uh, we don't have that big you know, kind of fall uh, preview season that we usually have around this time um, looking forward. So I will be curious to see if they can elevate some of the shows that we actually have been watching, whether it's docu-series or reality, um, to the same level that that some of the other prestige shows have been, um, have been elevated to. And I don't see why, given um, some of the performances we've seen from our Real Housewives, you know, why Andy Cohen can't be accepting a handful of Emmys next year. It just doesn't make sense. You know what I mean? Like Lisa Rinna, Denise Richards, they've been carrying that show. And if that's not premium acting, like I really don't know what is. Sonia Morgan, Best Actress in a Comedy. 
Oh my God, Dorinda, come on, villain of the year. Like <laughs> this is what we're watching and the Emmys need to start reflecting that. Obviously, you know, give a statue to Julia Louis-Dreyfus again, you know, sure. <laughs> I, I feel like she's a lifetime member, but um, also they, they have to start reflecting the stuff that people are actually consuming. And it, it is right now, it, it is that stuff that, that they're churning out. Shireen, will Carol Baskin add Emmy-nominated actress to oh, her my profile? God. She's on Dancing with the Stars, which is, yes. I think, a rite of passage for like anyone, according to Emile's list. Like Lisa Rinna was also that. So I think there's a Emile way to get through, and it gets reality TV, then Dancing with the Stars, and maybe. My only focus, and I don't usually go hard line because I appreciate television a lot, is if Schitt's Creek doesn't win everything, I want the US-Canada border permanently closed. <laughs> I am, we don't want to have another War of 1812 on our hands. Uh, wow. I, I did yeah. not know the stakes were that high for Schitt's Creek. Strong but, words. Um, Kevin, today, the day that people are listening to this episode is the day of the 2020 Country Music Awards. And with everything being upended in the entertainment industry, I know I'm going to be watching, but... I'm wondering, aside from the Country Music Awards of 2020 hosted by Keith Urban, are award shows still relevant? You know, it's so cool to say that award shows are irrelevant and no one cares about them anymore, but I reject that wholly. Um, I think, you know, when you talk about something at the Country Music Awards, like obviously it's not the bastion of, you know, artistic merit. Pardon but, you? Well, I'm, I'm going there. I'm going there. <laughs> Um, I got you. I got you, Kevin. I'm however, backing you up here. What, what, My mouth just dropped. <laughs> <laughs> what those shows do give people is, you know, the, the live performances and the entertainment and whether or not they're watched live in real time doesn't matter because no one watches anything live in real time anymore. But they'll watch the Taylor Swift performance on YouTube tomorrow. So, you know, those shows just yeah. exist as, you know, live entertainment, which is great. And they will continue to do that. And then something about the Oscars, you know, I, I echo everyone's frustrations about how, you know, seemingly out of step they seem to have been with the way the industry has evolved and needs to evolve and the way that we watch and consume and celebrate movies. But the fact of the matter is it's still this venerable institution that has a trickle down effect from, you know, what they award to who gets opportunities in the industry to what we see on film and then how culture changes. And mm. that that is going to continue to matter. It'll, it'll matter if... Viola Davis becomes the first black woman to win two Oscars if she wins for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom this year. It, it matters if Chadwick Boseman and Delray Lindo get Defy Bloods, you know, wins. It, it just it just matters that those like it mattered like last year when Parasite won Best Picture. It it it, mm -hmm. it changes how people are going to see the world and see the industry, and that's what an award show does and can do and should still do. Emil, can I buy a pessimistic opinion from you? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I'm glad that you knew that that's where I was going. Um, I guess what I think about it is is what what purpose do they serve? And if historically it's been to to celebrate um, beautiful art, I mean, is that Green Book? I don't I don't think so. Um, <laughs> you know, if it's an aberration, if we're still talking about the fact that it's so crazy that Parasite, which was you know to me inarguably the best film of the year, if it's crazy that that won then that tells me that they are out of step with not just the industry, but with audiences and what people are watching and what and what they're talking about. Um, and I think if this year they're not setting um, kind of the the stage for what you should be watching, then then what, yeah, to me, what purpose do they serve? And I just, 
year after year, I just sort of think like, who is this for? And I just don't, I don't know the answer anymore. And so to me, yes, they are irrelevant. Well, I, uh, I don't see how anything but Succession ends up winning Best Drama. I don't see how anything but Queer Eye ends up winning in for Best Reality TV Show. Quickly, let's go around and you, each one of you pick a category and give me a prediction. Let's start with Kevin. I think Watchmen is going to rightfully win every limited series category. Um, and, you know, thank God for that. What a, what a wonderful, important, crazy, different and exciting show that was. So um, I'm really happy that I, I, for once, feel confident in being satisfied with what I, wanting to, what I want to win will actually win. Shireen? Uh, best comedic performance, leading actor for Emmys, got to be Eugene Levy. I mean, Ted Danson, Michael Douglas, are you kidding me? Eugene Levy here? Yeah, no. Uh, again, Catherine O'Hara, I love it. I want Schitt's Creek to take everything. And Emil? First of all, someone tell me what the Kaminsky method is. is real? <laughs> no, or no. Like, did I dream it? Is it like a fever dream? We'll never know. Um, I have to say something. It's, it's, it's actually a good show. Is it? Oh my God. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're it bursting is. the bubble. How dare that I, you? <laughs> to me, it's like, it's not a real show. It's no, just like, he looks Easter like egg. the emperor from Star Wars now. Like, I mean, <laughs> give someone else a shot here. Come on. <laughs> Um, but for me, the, the category that I'm, I'm most excited about is Best Supporting Actor for Drama. Um, so, you know, it's all about succession. Um, I'm just going to use their character names. So Tom Wamsgams, uh, Cousin Greg, and Roman Roy are all nominated in this category. And for me, it's got to be Tom. It's got to be Matthew McFarland. He is just, I think, one of the most important actors of his generation. Wow, that's huge praise. You, you can't make a... Uh, a tomlet without breaking a few Greg. <laughs> Kevin, Emil, Shireen, what a nice time we've all had. But before we go, let's drop it in the group chat. I'd like to hear the thing that you're watching, the thing that you're reading, the thing that you're listening to. Maybe it's a bad meme. I don't know. Describe whatever's going on in and around your life. Let's start with Shireen. Uh, I'm reading a book by my dear friend, Jessica Luther, co-written with Kavitha Davidson called Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back. It's wonderful. It talks about fandom and dealing, try to be an ethical fan in sports when sports we all know is terrible. Um, and for many reasons, I'm watching Golden Girls streaming on Prime because I'm obsessed. And I feel like, you know, Dorothy Spornak is my Patronus. So I'm very, very excited about that. And what else? I'm, yeah, just really happy and consuming those things. I'm also reading um, Summer Habib's book. It was listed on Canada Reads, and I love it. I'm listening to the audiobook, and I have some issues, but I love her book. I think it's brilliant. I can't believe you're assigning me books as homework, Shireen. Like, I have, yeah. I have things to consume, award shows to watch, but fine. <laughs> Thank you. And Kevin, what about you? What would you like to drop in the group chat? Well, all of the glamour and fabulousness of the Toronto International Film Festival has relocated to my sad one-room apartment. Um, I've been consuming <laughs> all of those films from my laptop, as every great movie is meant to be seen. Um, <laughs> but I've actually seen some really great things already, and it's, it's, the film festival is still going on. But um, the, the standout by far has been Nomadland, um, this gorgeous film by Chloe Zhao, which stars Francis, Francis McDormand. Um, as a woman in her, you know, it's her 60s who's 
who spent her entire adulthood in this um, factory town. Then that factory closed, her husband died, and she suddenly had nowhere to go. And like so many other people of her generation who um, fell through the safety net, because the safety net doesn't exist in, mm. in America, um, was forced to hit the road. And she travels through the heartland of America, trying to make ends meet and meeting some really inspiring people. And it's just this beautiful portrait of a kind of America that we don't really validate or think about or um, acknowledge. And it, it's such a beautiful performance by her. And I think that she'll, um, I, I, base, I mean, I know it's so early and making these kind of broad, broad predictions is ridiculous, but I think she could win Best Actress again. Oh, wow. Um, quite an endorsement. And I can't wait to talk about whether award shows matter when she uh, is inevitably nominated and is on her way to win. Anytime France McDormand is not an award show, they matter. 100%. Uh, what about you, Emil? Uh, I'm obsessed with The Vow on HBO. It is the docuseries about the cult Nexium. Um, and it's just like, I cannot get through an episode without screaming multiple times. And the fact that like a man named Keith was able to lead um, multiple beautiful women into, <laughs> um, <laughs> into subservience is like truly shocking. And he plays volleyball. Uh, but it, it's so, it's so well done. And you honestly are just gripped, uh, from the beginning and a cult leader named Keith. Like, how can you not watch Keith so Richards could do so it? So I shady. mean, my God, <laughs> poor uh, Keith's, <laughs> Keith's life. Sorry, matter. all the Keith's who are listening oh to this. Don't come for me, Keith's don't come for me. Cause I'm ready. <laughs> So that's it for the show. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at PopChatCBC. That's where you can find the links to all these amazing recommendations. And I don't know, maybe the library link to the books that Shereen is recommending to us. And of course, subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. Thank you so much to the panelists, Kevin Fallon, Emil Niazi, Shereen Ahmed. Thank you so much for joining today. This is PopChat, the show where we help you make sense of the cultural dramas that are blowing up the internet. I'm your host, Elamine Abdul-Mahmoud. See you back here next week. You've been listening to the first episode of Pop Chat, different than what I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be conversation only about grandfathers. You can join in on the weekly group chat every Wednesday and subscribe for free on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.